Okay, I'm with the Eight Rights from Washington, D.C. You guys are hard to find. Want to know social media presence? The music is shared live. It's time and aggression. You gotta be there. Sorry, guys, we gotta clear out. You follow me? And then it's over. Holy shit. I told you to follow Stop! You can't keep us here. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. We're so fucking dead, guys. What do we do? Oh, shit. This will be over soon, gentlemen. What are they doing? They're coming. We gotta go. And we die. How long can we wait? We're sure that is. Is that a pep talk? Just grab some shit, get ready to run. Here we go. I see the bad moon rising. Careful now. I can't die here. So don't. It's fucking hard, man. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 210, Green Room. Another Matt pick, or at least uh, on the Matt list. Yeah, taking a step back from the listener requests, we'll get to another one of those, I think, in early March. But yeah, slowly but surely... (laughs) trudging our way through yeah. this mat list. <laughs> I would say this was like a surprisingly cool movie. The no, this movie is awesome. Yeah. I completely love this movie. This uh, has been on the list to do since we started, yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, unexpectedly cool, maybe. I know that Blue Ruin was liked. It was well-reviewed, and people enjoyed it when it came out. But this, I, I would say this movie had a little bit more mainstream appeal, even though the, the violence is absolutely insane. Yeah, I was thinking that... This was one of those instances where, before we even saw it, 
I knew it was going to be awesome. You just had that It seemed vibe. cool. The trailer seemed cool. The trailer was awesome. I was familiar with Jeremy Sonier from Blue Ruin, which I thought was a pretty kick-ass movie. And the whole mashup of the punk scene with this tense, violent thriller, it just seemed like can't miss. Yeah. And so I was definitely excited to see it. And for those of you who listened to the Give Us a Second recently, we're in a short period of time, we're talking about Anton Yelchin again. Yeah, this was the last movie to come out before he died. It's obviously not the last movie that he's in. Right. But yeah, that was a weird thing. It was such a freak accident, evidently. Yeah. Then, of course, Patrick Stewart in this. Yeah. He is. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There was no more to that, just he's in it? Not a lot of reaction to that. I don't know. I I think that was one of the things that, from the trailer, it, it feels like too small of a movie for him to be in. I guess, but outside of, like, the major comic booky type stuff, like Star Trek. Oh, I'm sorry, Trek. Professor X is not a big enough Or, yeah, character. that's a comic book thing. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm saying he's on <laughs> this level that it doesn't seem like he would be in a movie like this. Green Room came out in 2015, written and directed by Jeremy Saulnier. Has he done another movie since this? Yes. What Hold was the Dark on Netflix. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I think he did two episodes of the most recent season of True Detective. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Hold the Dark. Maybe we'll do that someday. <laughs> that's that's an interesting one. Yeah, I was probably one of the bigger fans in the country. It seemed like most people didn't like it. I, I liked it. Well, it's got our girl in it, right? Riley Keough? Yeah, she's in it. Of course, this movie has one of our girls in it, too. Imogen Poots. <laughs> they all have one of our girls in it when you think about it. <laughs> that's really true. So before we jump into Green Room, which was a pretty awesome movie, let's run down everything. Oh, please. Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe, Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Follow us on Letterboxd, at Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. People seem to have jumped in, people dipping their toe in the water a little bit. I think people are still trying to figure it out. Yeah, almost a surprising amount of traction, though. I'm getting followers on there quicker than on anything I've ever done. Yeah, it's a wild scene. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have quite the cachet yet as some of the longtime users that have like a notoriety to them already because they've been on Letterboxd for years. That's a slow build. But we're building a nice little community. I'd like to see our listeners review more movies so that we can look at their reviews. A couple people have done it, but it's mostly... I mean, as long as you're at least giving stars... Yeah. I mean, you know, that's enough for me. In addition to that, we still have some stickers. You can reach out on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Let us know if you want a sticker. It seems like some people have started to receive them. That's right. I would say social media is a buzz over receiving these stickers. People loving it. People going wild. Me just writing people personalized notes on the girliest paper ever. So, yeah, I think that covers everything, right? That's the rundown. Yeah. I think that's the, the general house cleeping. So let's talk about Green Room. $5 million budget. It made 3.8 at the box office. was not mm. a hit, no, but it was well-received. 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Everyone seemed to like it who saw it. It's one of those things where we probably didn't see it until well into 2016, which Ooh. is annoying. Limited release. Yeah. 
I guess if you listen to that Give Us a Second where we talked about Thoroughbreds, this is sort of the same idea. These movies that the studio thinks that there isn't a big future for, they sort of give up on it, and then, of course, they're doomed to fail, and then they use that as justification to not make them anymore. And we're always just getting upset about these movies that we want to see that aren't being released in theaters around here. Yeah, it's just it's annoying. Now, I think there'd be almost no way that this movie could happen, and it's only been like five years but i just i just think we're at a point now where you have to get something going with a streaming service especially if you're talking about these mid-budget these mid-range type movies which is crazy to even call five million mid-range that used to be small budget but that's just the way it is you have to either spend 300 million or a million (laughs) there's no in between anymore and it's because no one went to see this, although I don't know that it ever really was in that many theaters at once. It seemed like a pretty small thing. Yeah, like trickled out. But yeah, it is a hard R. And Oh, for sure. Sonier said basically he had one chance to make this movie because of the buzz of Blue Ruin. He knew that he wouldn't be able to make it later in his career because it's too violent. It's hard for me to remember what my top 10 of the year was in 2015. But I, this was on both of our lists. Yeah, I'm sure we did it on the show, but now in retrospect, actually, these, it was probably on our 2016 list. That's probably true. Because we didn't see it. I don't know. In retrospect, though, it definitely seems like one of the best movies of that time period. Yeah. I have a memory of us at least talking about it somewhat on the show. Yeah, I'm sure we did. So I guess there's not a whole lot to say other than to just jump into it. There's I not thought really... you were going to be like, so that's it. That's Green Room. <laughs> Folks, we'll see you next week. Let's jump into it. Green Room. It's about a punk band named The Ain't Rights. They're traveling the Pacific Northwest on sort of a DIY tour. Seems nuts because they're a Washington, D.C.-based band far from home. Yeah. It's an ode to something that I think was more prevalent in the past, probably less so now. It does feel of another time a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure that there are still bands like this who survive like this. Siphoning gas. Most of the things in this movie, up until, of course, the crazy shit, is based off of stuff that Solnier experienced firsthand during his punk rock days. Okay. He claims everything except the siphoning of the gas, but I have a feeling he just didn't want to admit that he was involved with that. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> know if the statute of limitations It is seems up. a little too perfect. It's like, well, how else are you going to do this shit on no money, basically? Yeah, I know. Well, especially at, at some point, they're talking about driving back to D.C. with barely any money from Portland. Yeah. I was thinking a lot, though, about when I was in middle school and stuff, and there were kids in my grade that would wear Dead Kennedy shirts and stuff like that, and the bands that are sort of celebrated in this movie in one way or another and i just can't imagine that there's kids that wear like dead kennedy shit in seventh grade now i wouldn't think unless it's something that every generation has its wave but it's hard to picture maybe like one or two i mean i was slightly younger than you and i definitely had waves of them but i would say we're still uh contemporaries yeah it just seems like there was a shift at some point i'm not saying that there are no kids that listen to punk rock but I don't know. It just seemed way more mainstream in a weird way, even though that sort of goes against the basic idea of it. But yeah, I would agree. There were a lot of posers, mostly. I mean, you're you're talking about children in middle school. It's it's sort of ridiculous that they're walking around with these shirts. 
you know, like the very uh, extreme politics in punk rock scene, one way or the other. We, of course, in this movie, experienced the the other extreme oh, yeah. end of it. I remember around this time period in my life, Poser was just such a burn. Like, you just did not want to be called a poser. Yeah, exactly. But the, I think the truth is that, like, they all, all of these kids yeah. are... It's like, what, are the, what do they know about this shit? But what the eight rights are experiencing is sort of something that bands in the scene force themselves into. And there really isn't much of an alternative because as they talk about very early on in the film, it's not like they have money to make recordings. They're not being backed by anything. It's get in your van, be a part of the community, and you can like book shows through a network of people who are in different cities. Like their connection is this Tad guy, this local quote unquote DJ. I don't radio really host. To, yeah, I don't really know how to explain him because it doesn't really seem real. Hosting some some shitty podcast, greatest punk bands in the history of forever. Anybody who says that their radio signal is like eighty five point five, it's like. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about left of the dial, <laughs> it's like you can't get any further lower. Yeah, you just have to go out there, you sleep on people's floors, you don't make any money, you rely yeah. on the kindness of other people, basically like, here's a show for you, you'll get like 12 bucks. And it is weird, I mean, how that they don't even aspire to make a record. They live to play live shows, which I always understood and would get why that's like the most fun part of it, but it how long are you going to be able to carry this on? Yeah, I think they're idealistic in a way that's sort of naive and annoying. But I don't think that that's unintentional. No. And I will say, at one point in my life, I would have loved to have been a part of this lifestyle. This is I, I would have wanted to do this so bad. But I do think the reality of it is a lot worse than what you imagine it to be. I think that... The movie sort of hinges on a bigger question about ethics and like punk rock ethos. And I'm not sure if it's intentional. I have to assume it is because it seems very obvious to me, especially in rewatching it a couple times, where, and, and this is obviously the most extreme example of it because it's such a horrible, horrific thing that happens, but you have this band who are very set in their ways. And that's sort of exemplified by the stuff that Pat says, played by Yelchin. He's the bass player of the band. And when he does, they do the interview, he's the one talking about wanting to play the live music. And they've got that very ingrained thing of like, don't sell out, stay true, et cetera, et cetera. But then when they're confronted with a semi-difficult situation, which is they have to drive across the country with like 20-something bucks so they can basically fill up their van once, and they're going to have to siphon gas, they have this temptation of this money, and then even when they're confronted with the reality of what this scene is going to be, they still ultimately don't leave. Oh, yeah. And they're like, we need this money. They don't come out and make a big deal about it. It isn't harped on. But they take the money, and in a way, that's this extreme version of selling out. Yeah. I also feel like there's this juxtaposition of them with their belief system, and then they're kind of bumped up against this, obviously, like, extremely hateful, like, white supremacist group. And I, I like the part where, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know which character it is, but they're talking about, you know, the group of people that hang out at this place. And it's like, right wing or far left. <laughs> just talking about like these radical 
That's Tad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird that he doesn't really give them more of a warning. I do agree. That seems odd. Like, he's not doing them... He's not being fair to them enough. Yeah, because the scene, of course, is is pretty bleak. And it flies in the face of what I think most of the punk rock movement would be about. I think most of the scene is very much a part of like the liberal left. And this is... We're talking... SS, Nazi, oh, yeah, right. fascism, that kind of stuff. American Very History X. Racist scene. But yeah, I think you can look at this as a morality tale, like a very exaggerated, hyper-stylized thing about staying true to your core beliefs in the face of adversity. And it is adversity. There's no... You can't sugarcoat it. Getting back to D.C. was going to be tough. Oh, yeah. And they were going to have to steal gas. They were going to have to risk all kinds of danger essentially doing that but when they arrive at this gig and they see what the scene is morally they all do have a choice and no none of them really say like well we shouldn't do this let's leave right and i think that's a part of it because even like the naivete of these characters is explored from the very beginning of you seeing them which is basically the dude fell asleep at the wheel and they like crashed into a cornfield and no one is really making a big deal out of that when like falling asleep at the wheel is probably one of the most horrible, dangerous things that can happen. Yeah, they're traveling around the Pacific Northwest. The Ain't Rights are made up of Pat, played by Yelchin on bass, Sam, played by Alia Shawkat, maybe on guitar. Reese is the drummer, played by Joe Cole, and Tiger is the singer, played by Callum Turner. They wake up in a cornfield out of gas, so the Pat and Sam go on a gas-stealing mission where they ride a bike all the way 11 miles or something to an ice skating rink and siphon gas. Yeah, what a day. That would take some time. And this opening section of the movie has this dreamy quality. There's a forlorn, ethereal score. I think it's worth pointing out the brilliant cinematography by Sean Porter it's a really beautiful looking introduction to this. It's very almost like Terrence Malick or something. Yeah, it, it does look good. There is almost like a serenity to it. Yes. And it's like these opening few scenes, like this snippet of this lifestyle, I don't know, it feels like a fun glorification of it a little bit. Like that just meeting up with this dude who they've never met before and he's just like giving them the keys to his apartment and they're basically just like hanging out, partying there. Yeah, I think that's how it works. You have to rely on people, and there's this scene, and they're all like interconnected even if they've never met before. And that's how you have to do it. Because once you join the community, you like you will be able to get on bills, make enough money to get to the next place. You really eat, drink, sleep this lifestyle, this, yeah, yeah. this punk rock mentality. Sleeping on people's couches. The beginning has this tranquil, but haunted quality and then tad tells them the gig that they've arrived for has been canceled and so he gets them onto this ultra depressing mexican restaurant show. oh yeah i've played some shows like this in my life <laughs> oh almost exclusively yeah i was thinking about my own experiences playing in front of people <laughs> i would say that i've played some things that were similar to this gig as well although i would say even more hostile where the people were like angry <laughs> less that it was interested happening. yeah 
why are you doing this? Please stop. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we wrap it up? (laughs) I've definitely had some gigs that were on par with the the skinhead one that they get to do. Oh, yeah. Same, same. I've I've played in like biker bars (laughs) where you're just like, it'd almost be better if there was just no one here. (laughs) This punk rock radio host named Tad arranges a new show as sort of a makeup deal in a rural area outside of Portland through his cousin Daniel. And right away, as you mentioned, he does sort of tell them, you know, don't talk politics. They're pretty far right, or I guess technically ultra left. Right. (laughs) You know, you start getting into that thing where you're circling all the way around. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it sounds super sketchy, but they're in desperate need of this cash because the Mexican restaurant gig totaled out to about like, Six, Six bucks, bucks each. each. They have enough for maybe one tank of gas, and then who knows how they're going to get all the way back to D.C. And it turns out that his little warning was basically just the tip of the iceberg. It, it, it's a neo-Nazi skinhead club, and they'll be opening for a NSBM band called Cowcatcher. Now, hmm. NSBM, National Socialist Black Metal. Ah, I see. <laughs> I yeah, we're all familiar. Wasn't familiar with that genre. <laughs> Cowcatcher, quite a name. Really? <laughs> quite a group of dudes, really. And almost right away, like when they arrive at this place and they get out of their van, there's immediately this weird tension with Cousin Daniel. Yep. And you don't know why yet. And this place just seems bizarre. It's a daytime show. It's a bar, kind of, but it seems like... It it's definitely a seems like more like a hangout place. Yeah. yeah, I think it is similar to what you see in American History X. Right. There's just a compound on somebody's property. I would have to imagine that that's pretty true to life because it does seem like it sort of becomes a whole lifestyle club for these people to gather and indoctrinate themselves with this bullshit. And yeah. so... It's I'm all sure. immersive. It can't just be like, oh, we hang out at a bar like every week. It's like it's yeah. got to be all the time. Because even later on when we meet Darcy, the Patrick Stewart character, he mentions that thing about some racial workshop oh, thing right. that's not canceled or yeah, something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like people are coming there every day. It's their entire life. Because that will also be key in explaining sort of the motivations as to why things all get fucked up as people trying to leave the life. Right. And it is kind of like a cult in that sense. But we'll talk about that more when we get there because I think there are some unanswered questions that you can sort of speculate on what exactly the situation was. I feel like there's more details included than are even necessary. Like I picked up on this time, or, or I feel like maybe I've picked up on before but just didn't really stick with me. The whole thing with the baseball bat... Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think that's what I mean. Like, There's some unanswered questions about exactly what was going on. Because Darcy's whole plan as this thing continues to go on kind of changes. There's just some details thrown into here that it's interesting and it fills it out a little bit, but I almost feel like are unnecessary. One of the great moments of the entire movie, though, is when the Ain't Rights start their set with a cover of the Dead Kennedys' Nazi punks fuck off. Yeah, that's certainly like a, an applause from the audience moment. <laughs> Not the audience at this show, certainly, but... I will say that it is a weird little part of the movie that I have a hard time buying. 
that they are slowly realizing the crew that's here and they're going to open their set by like trying to piss them off. No, it's that they piss them off and how quickly they win them back. Well, yeah, I know. Well, then immediately when that right. song's over, the crowd is just like forgetting that they were giving Even them the finger two seconds ago. I, like the crowd was throwing beer bottles at them. Yeah. One thing that's pretty cool about Green Room, though, is that all of the actors are actually playing. Not live, but it is them. Oh, yeah, that is cool. And Alia Shawkat and Anton Yelchin already knew how to play their instruments. The other two, like the one dude had to like learn how to play the drums for oh, wow. this movie. Okay. And the other one, the singer, had never like had any experience with music. Now, it is sort of that cookie monster voice yeah, kind I mean, of stuff. He's basically like screaming. <laughs> yeah. But still, I mean, if you're not, if you don't have yeah, yeah, any idea about this stuff, like it, it's all brand new. But yeah, it's pretty cool. They sound good. They win the crowd back pretty quick after the Kennedy's cover. I do think it's sort of a cool choice by Sonier to like give us just a, a taste of the music, and then they yeah. cut to like that slow motion thing with the score instead. Right, right. Where we don't have to actually hear this music. The I know, whole time. and it, it looks cool too. <laughs> now, I, I'm sure we'll get to it and talk about it at some point, but. Just to go back to their radio interview, one of my favorite parts about this movie is the whole Desert Island Band thing. Right, yeah. And, and like the crucial scene we have for that right before kind of all the action. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to talk about it when we got to that callback. Yeah. Well, there's two callbacks, but yeah, the, the poignant one. I guess there's three moments in which Desert Island Band is brought up and it's kind of at different critical points of the movie. Yeah, I do think... Well, we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I think there is like sort of a statement being made with that whole thing. During the set, Pat notices two young women, we'll later learn their names to be Emily and Amber, looking disturbed and being led kind of being like from the ushered. room by some mean-looking skinhead dudes. <laughs> Aren't they all? <laughs> well, big. Yeah, yeah. Some of them sort of just look childlike. Sure, that's true. Probably because they're not that bright. I mean, the truth of these sort of things are, yes, of course, they're rooted in hate, and they start with hate, and they're based in hate, but I think they're able to grow because of people who are aimless. Damaged people that want to be a part of something. It's It's the same way that like the church gets people. It's like people looking for something, and it gives them this sense of power, and nothing gives people more power than to look down on others and to... And they use that hate and insecurity and all that stuff. Uh, and like these people, they just like need a sense of community, even if it's like <laughs> this horrible community. I mean, even the whole thing that's going on with Image and Poots, it seems like she's drawn to this crowd just because of something that we don't really know what it is. But there were people in her life that she says weren't white <laughs> that treated her not so good. The band gets off stage and all of their stuff is now lined up in the hall ready to go which contradicts the big warning they got before they played about keeping the hall clean or clear because it's a fire hazard and they really it's like a big deal to them for whatever reason. I think the idea, of course, is there's a huge drug lab in the basement of this place, and so they have to be like extra careful about everything. They don't want any like violations or people looking around, snooping around. They want to sure. like have a run a tight ship That's because right. obviously there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on this place in general because it's you know it's probably not like a big secret what the fuck's going on here so (laughs) yeah they're hiding in they don't want to give anybody an excuse to look around but we don't know that yet it was just specifically mentioned keep this hall clear and then when they come off stage all of their stuff's there and so they're basically ready to go 
about to leave, and then Sam realizes she forgot her phone. Pat turns back towards the green room to retrieve Sam's cell phone. Something horrible has happened. Pat stumbles on quite the scene in there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know how you could even react to something like this. It's so horrifying. And I mean, I think he reacts appropriately. One of the girls... turns and tries to leave. ...that we saw from the stage, Emily, is dead with a knife knife sticking sticking out of her head. I was going to say the same thing. The members of Cowcatcher are standing around her, as is Amber, played by Imogen Poots. Amber is the only one visibly upset, though, and she says, call the cops. It's weird that this happens with the band in the room. I took it to be he was in the band. That oh, a worm was part of the band. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of hard to tell what the details are, but you pick up on things that are said by Darcy and some of the other skinheads later. I think Cowcatcher was like the house band. Yeah, yeah. So, he does say we need a new house band. Yeah, I think that they're like just a part of it. Because when they say, at one point, they're like, Cowcatcher, clear out. And that dude leaves with them. So That's I think right. he's just okay. a part of that band. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. See, this all ties in with the unanswered questions, though, that we'll get to later. Because I, I'm wondering what the whole story is. That's all. We'll get okay. there. <laughs> Pat tries to flee the room and calls the police as he does, but he's caught and interrupted. Some bar employees named Gabe and Big Justin round up the rest of the Ain't Rights. Now, Gabe is the dude from Blue Ruin. Right. I think yeah. he's pretty good in this movie, too. Yeah. You can, like, buy his role because he seems like, I don't know, that he, he has a very human performance because he's this dude that's, like, trying to be a part of this lifestyle. And he's, don't you get the sense that he's a guy that's kind of been rising in the ranks amongst this community? And... I don't know. He thinks pretty quickly on his feet, although Darcy doesn't necessarily approve of all the, all of the ways he's handling it. But doesn't he almost bring like a calmness to this intense situation? Like, I feel like he's kind of good at convincing them to stay. Yeah, yeah I think they're scared and they don't know what to do, but he's sort of calm. Instead of freaking out that Pat called the authorities, he answers when they call back and confirms what Pat said, that someone was stabbed. His mind's already in motion knowing that they're going to have to just bite the bullet and have that be addressed because it's too late already. Right, right. He's thinking more realistic. I think if you're in a panic state of mind and you're in that position and you're trying to cover this up, you would try to like act like it didn't happen or whatever. Yeah, that's what I mean. Just arise more suspicion. Quick on his feet. Yeah, Gabe's played by Macon Blair, who was in Blue Ruin. He appears in basically everything Jeremy Saulnier has done, including like his shorts and stuff. I think they're like good friends. But yeah, he is good in this movie. So Big Justin and Gabe can find them in the green room with Amber. The skinheads do come up with this whole ruse for the cops. That's right. Once Darcy arrives, the manager of the club, played by Patrick Stewart, He's sort of like the leader of this group. It's hard to really know what to even call them. <laughs> I don't know. Skinheads. Just like your local skinhead chapter. Yeah. The red laces. So the ruse for the cops is they have like these twin brothers, true believers, as they're almost mockingly referred to by some of the other skinheads. Yeah, yeah. It does make you question everybody. That's like the weird thing about this movie. And this also plays in with the Desert Island band thing that we'll get to later which is that everybody sort of puts up this facade, in a sense. That's right. 
yes, there are true believers, but the true believers in a way are almost seen as like naive. They're like more annoying. They're not seeing the bigger picture that this is all a business, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. all like smoke and mirrors, really. Like, yes, the hate is real. I'm not acting as if, oh, yeah, it's it's fake that they don't like minorities or whatever. But they're not so childlike about it, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. like, oh, yeah, this is some big movement that's actually going to like change the world rather yeah, than no. like, oh, we're charging you for drinks. That's right. And a cover to get into our stupid concerts no, and stuff. No, I mean, listen, we're just trying to meet some people that'll buy our heroin. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. They don't really care that much about this stupid front that they're putting up. And I think this movie is a lot about the fronts that we put up, the masks that we have. I agree. And that goes both ways, really. So they have one twin stab another, the cops show up, the knife isn't long enough to be considered felony assault or whatever just some, yeah they explain they that. give them some money to do this they're true believers <laughs> he takes the money back which i like he's basically checking this money out yeah and the one dude is like i guess he like keeps the books or whatever the guy that owns right. the dogs is like well you already checked out money today i was taking it that he just takes the money back from the kids just to give the money back it's all just this ruse with these kids like yeah we're gonna pay you to do this but then you know He's like, well, I'm just going to take the money back. Yeah, it could be. So Darcy arrives. The band is still currently in the green room. When they make Cowcatcher leave, we find out that the guy that killed the girl, Worm, this big, scary-looking dude, he's a fan of the Ain't Rights. Yeah, this guy is completely insane. He's like, you guys were hard. He's like, what's the name of that second-to-last song? That's the one I did her to. Yeah, it's pretty (laughs) fucked up. That's like when we meet a fan of this podcast. They're like, I killed that girl to your Sandlot episode. That's true. We do have a lot of worm type fans. Very intense and horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Just breathing heavily all the time. Now, before Meanwhile, the- if that was us, if we were that band and we just witnessed this murder and we were standing there and then he's like, oh, but actually I liked your song. We'd be like, well, Thanks, that man. changes everything. <laughs> like all of a sudden we'd be like sucking up to them. We're like, oh, wow, you really liked it. All of a sudden we're like, you know what? Emily seemed like she was a bitch. <laughs> we st- we're like starting a petition saying <laughs> she deserved it. <laughs> but before they clear out, right, does, is he pulls the knife out of her head. Yeah, that happens at some point. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing with him dragging her by the knife that's stuck oh. in her head was something that Sonier saw in a prison documentary or something. He said it was like one of the most horrifying things he's ever it seen, is. and it just stuck with him. But I like it. it I don't know if it's Alia Shawcott, but the, one of the characters is like, maybe she's not dead. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> Worm just proving that she very much is. It is weird when you rewatch this and you try, you're trying to break it down for this podcast and you're and you're looking for like well why does this happen you're you're asking yourself questions that you might not ask yourself when you're watching it for the first time oh absolutely you go so much farther into this movie than i remembered without really knowing why he killed her and that didn't ever seem to cross my mind when i was watching this the first few times i mean you find out I, yeah, the shell of the story later but whole, like it's like a shot of adrenaline when this whole thing happens you know what I mean? And yeah. then they're like, they're just in this situation. And you're so caught up in that, that you're not sweating the details. I guess that's one of the advantages when you make your villains of the movie just be despicable people. You don't really need a reason. That's right. You're just like, yeah, it makes total sense. That they're the stormtroopers. They're bad, <laughs> you know? 
Although Darcy later does sort of blame Gabe for this. He does, yeah. Because he's he like... He kind of blames everybody, though. Well, he, he, he changes his tune once yeah. he finds out a key bit of information, the bat that you were alluding to. That's right. But he does at one point think, why did we just not sacrifice Worm? Because now we have to deal with this whole situation for some bullshit. Yeah, I know. No one knows why he killed her. And we they easily could have given that. up some idiot. It is weird that everyone shows up and is being updated that this happened, and no one asks, why did he do this? Right, right. What are we doing? It just well, suddenly I guess becomes when damage control. You have a guy like Worm, everyone just kind of th- you know, thinks he's only insane. only a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> In the room, you have the band, Amber, and Big Justin, who's left guarding them. He's sort of this tall, fat guy. That's right. He's actually a recognizable actor. Yeah, I think Sonia just saw a picture of him and was like, that's this Big guy. Justin. Yeah. yeah. I want to I audition him. Outside, we have Gabe, Darcy, which is weird. I, I never really think of Darcy as a man's name, so calling Patrick Stewart Darcy is sort of weird to me, but okay. Yeah, I didn't know if you if we're just supposed to, Is that like a last name? I don't know. It's hard to say. And the rest of the skinhead crew, although they are keeping a tight lid on it, they don't want more people to know because obviously sure. the more people that know, we don't need a scene the here. more they're going to have to deal with. Because I think... It's already kind of a lot of people. Yeah. I think almost immediately Darcy knows where this is headed. It takes a little while for him to just say it, but I think he knows that they can't let more people know about this because of what they're going to have to do. So there's this tense standoff. Amber is sort of guiding them through it. Sam, in particular, not really trusting of Amber. Sam seems to think of Amber as one of them rather than one of us, although Amber is clearly not with them at this point. She does seem to hate them. Can't really blame Sam because you're like, well, what were you doing here? <laughs> Sam calling her like Ilsa and different <laughs> things like that, which is like pretty funny. Although I was like, I know it's a movie, but would you be able to make jokes? I don't think so. <laughs> like these quick little one-liners. Yeah, you're just trying to bring some levity to the situation. But she's sort of telling them what is happening, and they don't want to believe her at first because she's being so realistic. She's right, like, right. they're going to kill us. They are just biding their time. They have all the guns, whatever. She has like a very deadpan delivery. Not a lot of emotion in what she's saying ever. I do think in addition to this movie establishing Imogen Poots as like a legit badass character that's just like so awesome by the end of it. It's also a really strong performance. We all know that she's British. I don't really know what exactly this accent that she's affecting in this movie is but it's believable it sounds very backwoods-ish i would agree like hickish which you don't really associate necessarily with the pacific northwest but from what i understand outside of the urban areas it does get pretty sketch we feel uh off the beaten path a little bit where we are the skinheads try to lull them into a false sense of security by having big justin turn over the gun much to his chagrin (laughs) It is a weird moment because Darcy's like, all right, just give them the gun. Well, he's like, well, they've been talking about making a run at me when they knew I had the gun. <laughs> yeah. What's going to happen now? Eventually, with them not buying it and not falling for this, they do overpower Big Justin. Reese, it turns out, is sort of it's a like a MMA UFC guy. fighter. Yeah. He puts him into some sort of an armbar situation. They end up getting a box cutter off of him as well. Oh, boy. A box cutter that will come in. To play a lot. <laughs> yeah, especially in like one of the grosser parts with Big Justin. Yeah, well, I think for those of us who had seen 
Blue Ruin. Oh yeah, we leading knew. into this. You knew there was going to be these explosions of violence. Yep. And I think the buzz surrounding the movie before it was really out in theaters in most places was like holy shit. Yeah, I think I definitely went into it knowing that we were going to have some pretty bad violence scenes. As I said, Darcy's already realized that all the witnesses will have to be eliminated. He's going to have Cowcatcher gifted some poisoned heroin, although we won't find out that it's poison until much later. Well, he makes a comment about it, though, about them buying heroin from the wrong crowd or something. Yeah, but he says it much later, though. Okay, okay. He says that to Gabe. Like, at this point, he's just like, all right, we're going to have them leave, and then we see him give them the heroin. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he'll say later, when it, that's when he's like, we need to get a new house band, and he's like, that's right. Gabe is completely clueless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're going to have to wait until nightfall to kill the Ain't Rights. And Amber, we don't really get his full sense of a plan yet, although we'll start getting bits and pieces of it when they find the siphoning equipment. He's like, all right, we can use this. They're basically going to construct a whole crime scene. Darcy wants, quote, red laces only in on this. That's the true believers? The hardcores? Red bootlaces are mentioned a couple of times, once in reference to people who will be allowed to know what's going on, and once when a character earns his red laces, that would be Gabe. Yeah, which seems odd, because it feels like it's this moment of him getting, I don't know, knighted or something, but he feels like a higher-ranking member than a lot of these other dudes. Well... Let me finish this. Go ahead, we can... please. Red bootlace color is an important signal in skinhead culture, indicating the wearer has shed blood for the skinhead movement. Okay, then... Racist maybe... skinheads will often randomly attack non-whites to, quote, earn their red laces. I so he clearly hasn't done anything yet to, to get the red laces, but he's being gifted them for his involvement in putting this together later in the movie. Yeah, yeah. While a scene is in the process of being staged on the outside, the band negotiates through the door with Darcy, who asks them to surrender the pistol. And he's basically like, look, we could kick down the door and shoot you anyway, but we don't want to do that. We, <laughs> He keeps giving them this bullshit about the gun being unregistered. He's like, I just want to get the gun out of the picture. You know, he's being very reassuring <laughs> and stuff. But when you yeah. think about what he's saying, it's like, what are you talking oh, about? Oh, to their credit, I mean, they're not really buying it. I love the part when Pat's like, well, how about if you we trade it to you for a registered gun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then they ask for a phone. Yeah. And then they basically agree to just keep the bullets, which is such a naive thing. Clearly, they have other guns. Right, right. Like, the bullets in that gun aren't... I mean, well, even on. the image in Poot's character is saying that. Yeah. But Pat eventually agrees to surrender the weapon if they're going to keep the bullets. Oh, this part's horrible. Yeah, this is a wild, like, five minutes of the movie that just ramps this thing up to ten, where you're just like, oh my god. It's so, (laughs) like, so much crazy shit happens in just a few minutes, and that's when you realize there's no turning back. No, no, no. (laughs) This is, like, fucked up. Amber looks through the vents on the door, and just as Pat opens it to give them the gun, she notices other boots off to the side at the last second the other men try to force their way in while slashing at pat's arm we don't even really see them slashing at it which is actually great because then when he pulls that arm in you're just like it's so much worse than you ever would have even imagined (laughs) i mean his wrist is like hanging off while that's happening 
Reese just snaps Big Justin's arm in half, basically. Oh, yeah, which is also gross. They manage to get the door closed, but Pat has lost the gun and is severely injured. And it is... And it, and it's you're weird. talking, like, because oh. of the situation and because of how long this all plays out, you're talking amputation, probably. It's so I know. injured. At the, it's well, just I, and horrifying. I, thought, I remember thinking to myself, this guy's arm is going to be inoperable. He's not going to be able to use this thing for the rest of the movie. Now, they do have a solution for that. Well, once they do that solution, that, to me, means... It's over. That arm's coming off, because... Yeah. What are you gonna pull that duct tape off? But you're he pull that whole arm oh, apart. <laughs> but he does manage to like carry on through the movie in his new form. Yeah, I think that they put the duct tape on because of blood loss. Like he would probably bleed out, and so that sort of just like keeps it all together. Yeah. But of course, it, it it helps with his character because he kind of becomes like delirious. Yeah, which I feel like helps him in the situation. Although. He sort of always seemed a little out of that's it. That's true, even when he was telling the whole story <laughs> about the paintball match. Well, that's after the injury. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Big Justin goes on a rampage and clotheslines Amber, re-scrabs him and chokes him out. Amber gets the box cutter and slashes Big Justin's stomach Disgusting. open. Disgusting. Hard to watch, I would Insane. say. Insane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was when I was like, this movie's an A-plus for me. This is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and <laughs> you don't see so shit like this slow. in mainstream movies. It's like so slow, just cutting his skin open I know, and it starts bleeding. And it, oh. even like these people who just witnessed their friend's arm get hacked, they saw a dead, the dead girl is still on the floor. They know that there's a good chance they might die at this point. Yeah. Even they're all like, what the fuck? <laughs> they can't even believe <laughs> I know, that she like, did this. Well, I can't believe we're locked in here with this room. This chick is insane. That, for me, I was like, wow, this girl is hard as fuck. Oh, this is really? awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I want to date this girl. Yeah, I was like, she, no prisoners, hell hath no fury, because she was fucking pissed that they murdered her friend. That's right. I mean, understandably. Look around. Are you seeing a lot of chicks around this compound? <laughs> Imogen Poots has such a distinct, beautiful face with like sort of recognizable features, like sort of a big nose. Yeah. In a good way. I mean, she's just got like a very like I would say she has defined like face. eyes too. Yeah. And then they just put that like ridiculous hair on her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, oh, okay. Like we can't tell that she's like insanely beautiful. <laughs> well, I love her in this, but I also love her in that joke karate movie with Jesse Eisenberg oh, yeah. that we watched too. The art of self defense. She, her character in that movie is great too. Yeah, just like beating the shit out of people in that movie. Yeah, she's awesome. I wish that she was in more things. Green Room has gone from zero to sixty in no time at all. <laughs> yeah. Unhinged bursts of colorful, memorable violence. Meanwhile, cousin Daniel, who by the way is played by Mark Webber of Scott That's right. Pilgrim yeah. Fame. He shows up and he's just being filled in and finding out what happened to Emily and he's like sort of flipping out. Well, he was sitting in the car outside, like a car like running. Yeah, but he, I don't think he was there at first. I think he went to go get their stuff. Okay. And that's why it's in there later. And then there was supposed to be a specific signal for Emily to come out. This is all stuff we'll sort of find out later. So basically, when Tad was filling in the Ain't Rights on this gig, he's like, my cousin is coming back here and staying at my place with his girlfriend. I got to clean up first or something. It's sort of a throwaway little thing that you don't pay any attention to. And then 
I don't know if it's Tiger or one of the dudes in the band mentions something to Daniel when they first arrive, and he that's what causes Daniel to freak out. He's like, shut up. Right. Almost like absurd to the point where you're like, you're just drawing more attention to it. Yeah, yeah. But whatever. He can't play it cool. Although you don't really get the sense that a lot of the people in this group ever can... play anything no, cool. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it just it makes it so much more suspicious because you're like, what is this dude flipping out about already? Yeah, yeah. And the band sort of just rolls with that in a way that also is bizarre and plays in with what I said about them ignoring everything just to get this 300 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever it is. Right. Because you I guess just, just show up. Yeah. You're this band. This guy gets in your face and is like has his forearm under your chin like, shut up. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? I guess you're just used to people being dicks to you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he shows up. He, here's what happened to Emily. So... In the green room, the band tears up some floorboards and discovers a drug lab under the club, but the only exit is locked from the outside. Eventually, seemingly out of options, they're like, fuck it, and they we arm themselves run on it. with some improvised weapons, planning to run and fight their way out. First of all, this is where Pat starts telling the paintball story, yeah. which will get finished later, and is based off of a real event and a real person. They actually use the the real Ricky name. Ricky Silva or something yeah, like Rick that? Silva Rick Silva is the real friend of Jeremy Sonier, I guess. And this is like a real paintball story about going into a paintball battle against Marines or something. Like ex-Iraq soldiers. I was thinking about the paintball scene from the beginning of Say by the Bell, Wedding in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was quite like that. <laughs> This is also where we get the call back to the Desert Island Band, which is a question that Tad asked on their sad little interview on his this couch. Is my favorite scene in the whole movie. Where they're going out because I think, I'm not sure if it's Reese or it's probably Reese who's like flipping out at this point. And it's just like, I'm going out there. Fuck it. Yeah, he is the one that keeps pushing this. Like, the longer we stay here, the more fucked we are. We're just giving them more time to come up with a plan to kill us. Yeah. So he's like, let's go out there and fight. And I think they all sort of know that this could be the end. And it is. And this is like the last little poignant moment here. And this is what I was talking about. The big revelation is that a couple of the people in this band give their real Desert Island bands. They all gave like hard edged ones. Punk bands that I've like never even heard of, I don't think. Other than the Misfits. I think the one guy says Black Sabbath. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they all settle on, but... Sam says Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Uh, I think... I think it's Reese says Prince. Yeah, one of them says Prince. One of them sticks with the Misfits. Pat still doesn't answer it, which he never answers it in the movie. We'll get to that later. Yeah. For mine, my, my fake one would be Lady Gaga, and my real one would be Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really have one, I don't think. But Amber chimes in after... Because they don't ask her, because they're still kind of like separated from her in a sense. But she says Madonna and Slayer, which is yeah. pretty funny. It got like a nice reaction in the theater. That's right. But yeah, this is the last moment that they're together. There's a poignancy to the whole trip leading into this show where you're just sort of like, this is an idyllic memory of youth. Like they're sort of mid-20s. They're probably not going to be able to do this very much longer. The cinematography looks awesome. When they arrive in that little urban area where Tad is, it yep. just looks so cool. Absolutely. And you're like, Life is an adventure. And then it's like they just so end up grim. in hell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like this is a nightmare. And then they have this one little Which moment together. Pat literally says almost at the end of the movie. He just, like the line, this yeah. is a nightmare. 
So they go out of the door of the green room and they're alone at first. There's no one there. Yeah, it's very eerie. But then one of the skinheads, I think his name is Clark, he unleashes an attack dog, which quickly kills Tiger and scatters the others. Just by like ripping his throat out. Reese escapes through a window but is immediately stabbed. So within... 90 seconds basically of screen time two of the band members are killed and so you know the stakes are like insanely high right right this is turning into like a horror movie where there's going to be a sole survivor or something you're like oh shit this isn't something that's gonna just be happy at the end i always felt like reese should have had more of a chance he gets out that window he's almost like oh shit while he's still falling out the window and then someone's just like on top of him stabbing him repeatedly the dog attacks Amber, but Pat realizes the microphone feedback, because they're like in the main area of the club now, drives it away. So they're able to get rid of the dog. Pat, Sam, and Amber retreat back to the green room to regroup. And you're like, well, that went well. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> we were five, two. now we're to, down to three. Yep. <laughs> Cousin Daniel volunteers to go in to kill the survivors because he's flipping out about Emily, who he has been dating. That's his girlfriend. He's under the impression that the band murdered Emily, although it does Which seem band? like he doesn't believe it. Yeah. Because he doesn't seem to go in there with any intention to kill. He's just like, I got to find out what happened for real. I right, know right. I know they're lying to me. So he goes in with this other guy. They get to the green room. They break their way in. But Daniel doesn't attack when he gets sprayed in the face with the fire extinguisher. He wants to know what happened. So Amber explains that Worm murdered Emily after discovering that Emily was planning to leave the skinhead life. So this is it. We finally have reached this moment that we've been alluding to, the yeah. unanswered questions. What exactly is the story here? Two of the band members died without even knowing what they died for. <laughs> yeah, just a horrible death too. Although to be fair to Reese, he's actually not dead. He's still breathing. <laughs> oh, yeah. This movie does not pull any punches. No, really. no. So what happened here? I feel like this whole story is a little bit unclear. It's while Daniel's inside that Darcy searches the trunk of his car, finds the stuff packed to leave. Leaving is maybe bad enough. I don't know if that's murder-worthy necessarily. But in their belongings is a bat covered in blood in a bag. Yes. And so they sort of keep this pretty vague. Something happened. But there was like this a is year almost ago. like a piece of evidence. Yeah, yeah. That he was supposed to, Daniel was supposed to get rid of this or something. Yeah, they're alluding to a situation where Worm, probably, I'm assuming, because he'd have to have, I'm assuming they're saying he has a personal stake in this, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Daniel, others maybe earned their red laces with some incident here, but now it seems like whatever that incident was is part of the motivation for leaving, and perhaps he's taking this evidence to turn in to rat on them i don't know that's what darcy seems to think because oh perhaps worm saved us all is what he says something like that that's right without even knowing it this is a part though that i feel like we didn't really need this extra detail like i feel like daniel and emily just leaving would have been enough for me (sighs) i don't know I don't know what the protocol is. I don't know if that's like if it would be normal for them to kill somebody just for leaving. Well, I I just feel like Worm was also crazy, which that also Yeah, like I enough. think that's fine too, but I think that they're, they're like alluding to possibly a love triangle here. I would agree with that. Why else yeah. is he so pissed that she's leaving? I don't know. Right. 
that isn't ever really stated, and yet after I saw this I movie for the first too, time, yeah. I felt like that was what they were kind of well, implying. Again, I mean, there's not a ton of women running around this compound. No. So, I mean, when the one is going to leave, how would you react? <laughs> well, hopefully I wouldn't be there in the first place. <laughs> I get what you're saying, that you don't need that piece of information, but I think that the way that they tease this out it's kind of cool because it definitely adds another layer. Of it lets depth you speculate what exactly the situation is sure, without telling sure. you every detail. You're like, all right, was there a love triangle? What happened? Is Daniel going to be incriminating himself? Is he like sacrificing himself to reveal what happened here with this bat? Unclear. Who knows? They certainly packed a lot, like they were planning whole life. Yeah. Daniel agrees to help Pat, Sam, and Amber escape. Although I don't know how really. He seems naive about this whole thing. Well, I, I guess he at least isn't quick enough. But I don't even know what he's thinking he's going to do. I guess he knows the land, so maybe there's some secret Well, he goes for the same shotgun behind the bar. Yeah. So he seems to think he'll be able to hold them off and they'll be able to retreat into the woods or something. I don't know. You have to figure what are your options. I mean, they're, it's sort of crazy that they all ran out in the first place when... Tiger got attacked by the dog and everything, but I kind of agree with Reese. It's like... Yeah, you gotta I, do it, yeah. Yes, ultimately, the way things play out is insane that they figure a way out of this, but it seems like that's so unlikely to come up with this scenario to get out of this that he, he's thinking, like, well, maybe the shotgun will do it. Yeah. It'll buy us, like, enough space to get out of here. Sure. You gotta go for it. So they get into the club into the bar area and Daniel is shot dead by the other bartender with a shotgun. And this is like an insane jump moment where you're just like, Holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Because Daniel is like all for like two seconds, kind of like the badass hero. You know what I mean? It's just like, even like the way they frame him up in the shots and everything. And he has like so much confidence and like, this guy's going to get us out of here. And then just like killed immediately. Yeah. There was a scene exactly like this. Well, not exactly, but, the same idea in Blue Ruin, where somebody just gets shot in the face like unexpectedly. It's just this crazy violence. Even when rewatching this movie for this podcast and knowing that this was about to happen, I'm bracing for this to happen. Oh, yeah. It's still, I jumped. I was just like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Really? You know it's going to happen any second, and it's still such a crazy moment. Because the fucking bartender guy is so random. It's like a dude you barely see, and he shoots. Daniel in the face. The other three manage to kill the bartender with the machete and take the shotgun. They go through the front door only to be confronted by the whole skinhead team. <laughs> yeah, the whole crew's out there. Amber is shot but not killed. I think she's like shot in the leg or something. And Sam is attacked by the attack dog. She shoots it though. Which she manages to shoot, but it also kills her. So now we're down to just Pat and Amber, which is weird. It's a strange feeling once you're like, okay, well, we, we're down to really only one from the band, one outsider to this, and then this other girl. That's true. They, they are clearing characters out. It's an odd pairing that keeps you guessing, because I don't think that you would have thought that this would ha- be how it plays out. Pat and a wounded Amber once again retreat to the green room. And so now we're in the home stretch. It's starting to get light out. Darcy takes a couple of the remainder guys, because you have to... Okay, maybe I didn't express this the best way when we launched into the whole red laces thing, but he wanted red lace guys only, so it was like only a few people. It's only the people they really think they can trust. They want to minimize how many people know about this because 
they're basically killing a bunch of people. It's a bad scene. So it does sort of sway things to a more even level. It's not like a whole football team's worth of people are involved now. It's like a couple sure, of dudes. Sure. Just the hardcores. Because they cleared out a lot of the other people, the crowd for the show and everything. So there's like Darcy, Clark, Gabe, and then like a handful of other guys. Yeah, just unknown skinheads. So Darcy takes a couple of them with him to stage a scene to make it look like the band was killed while trespassing on his property. Although it does feel like even the staging of this scene would bring a lot of questions. Yes, it would. Wouldn't you just be better off, I don't know, breaking bad, getting rid of these bodies altogether, destroying this van? I I just feel like this... Well, he's concerned because he knows that at least Tad knows where they are. But he thinks that more people are, because he does say that whole thing about they're probably broadcasting this out on yeah, yeah, the yeah, internet right. or whatever, where they are. Even though stuff. we know they have no social media presence. Right. And they say that in the green room, because yeah. at one point Sam's like, no one even knows we're here except for Tad. Right. So they've really fucked themselves over, but the Nazis don't really sure, know sure. that. So he's worried that if they just disappear, he's doing everything he can to try to keep people away from the building. That's why he wants to stage the scene up the road away from the building. Because of the drugs. It's like a massive drug operation. It's the type of thing where you would go to prison for the rest of your life. Yes, absolutely. He's thinking that if we can make it look like they were trespassing on the property, trying to siphon gas, and these dogs killed them, that, you know, in these fucked up areas... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It seems like trespassing is like grounds to be just completely killed <laughs> like in insane ways right right but you know i think crazier things have happened i'm sure that's true but yeah it is far-fetched but he's trying to come up with a way i get it yeah where the, it will be explained as to where they are and yet no one will get blamed for it somehow I, I don't know i'm good with it gabe prepares to clean the bar while two other dudes are sent with a dog to finish off pat and amber who are coming up with a way to make a last stand. Pat is finishing off the paintball story, which yeah. and doesn't this... seems pointless because they don't even really do what he said. Yeah, I know. They actually do play war in a way. When That's he's true. like, we can't play war with these people. And his whole thing was like, oh yeah, this Rick Silva guy just basically was like, fuck it, and went out and started shooting them. And it's like, well, they don't do that. Is they come up with this um... whole elaborate trick. This part almost feels like a nod to Apocalypse Now with the, the face paint and the machete. Yeah, definitely. It is a crazy plan, and it, I love it because it's so perfect that you're just like, coming up with this would be the most brilliant thing ever. <laughs> yeah. I do like seeing Gabe with that whole, like that rubber getup where he's like pressure washing Oh yeah, bar. right. <laughs> and I do think that we find out by the end of this that Gabe is really one of those people we were referencing because he didn't have his red laces that's yet, right and he hadn't done anything he's violent. got the facade up too like and then when shit gets so out of control he's able to just sort of detach from I it I think he's realizing this lifestyle is not for him microphone feedback scares off the dog again so it just leaves the two Nazis when they open the door Pat is standing with his back to them right by the hole that they've dug into the drug lab but he's shaved his head so he looks like a skinhead from behind and they don't know who he is and they're like what the fuck and he's holding a machete and then he's just like yelling and being weird 
and jumps down into the basement area. And so they're like, what the fuck? Like, who is this? And then he's really? like down there like he's having a fight with himself, basically. Yeah, yeah. Just making a bunch of noise. Yeah, I don't know that it, they're really supposed to buy the head shaving thing, but it buys like enough seconds. Like it's, it's a diversion. Like in Little Giants when they put those tablets in their mouths. Intimidation. Yeah. It's it all just like mind that. games. <laughs> <laughs> one of the guys, one of the skinheads, follows him down into the drug lab while the other stands guard with his back to the room. Amber emerges from the couch cushions. This is an awesome shot. Up in the green room. Yeah, it cuts from like her creeping out and then it's like that weird angle where it's almost like her POV where like the box cutter is yeah, yeah. kind of slowly her weapon of choice by the along way along the ground. She ambushes the other Nazi cutting his throat with the box cutter. The idiot in the drug lab has three shots. This has been established. It is convenient obviously, but it's a movie. It was already established he had three shots left. What's the guy that owns the dogs? Is that Clark? Yes. I like when he says to the dude, the guy's like, well, I only have three shots. He's like, oh, good. Then you'll have one extra. Yeah, they're severely underestimating these two, which why wouldn't you? It doesn't seem like Everyone. they'd be able to do any of this, <laughs> and yet they do it. Everyone else was killed pretty easily, so these two should. Imogen Poots is just unkillable. I, I would agree. So she kills one in, in another horrifically violent way, and the idiot down there wastes his shotgun ammo. First he fires just up at her and misses. Two then shots left. She drops down the dead guy, but she, he doesn't waste a bullet on that. But then she drops down her friend Emily, and he thinks it's her. And so he shoots at that. And I forget how where he wastes the third one, but he basically just shoots at nothing three times. Yeah, yeah. And so Pat... And this guy fight, and they're fighting over the gun, and they're trying to like reload the gun because I think Pat had some shells. Because I think there's more than one shotgun floating well, I around. I think she drops a handgun down there. Yeah, yeah. she gets the handgun though. Okay. Because yeah. remember they're fighting over the shotgun, and the yeah, guy yeah, like loads right. it. Yeah, yeah. While they're fighting right. over it, it's kind of a crazy thing. But Pat only has one arm basically. Amber sneaks down and takes the handgun and shoots the skinhead twice, once in the neck and once in the head, and you're just like. Holy fuck. Imogen Poots. <laughs> yeah, really. She's Just racking up this body count out of nowhere. Cold-blooded. <laughs> Once they've killed those two and they're climbing up out of the drug lab, Gabe comes upon the scene and immediately surrenders because he's just wearing his, like, rubbers and well, he doesn't and know he what's going on. he actually kind of has the high ground on them for a second. You know what I mean? He sees them kind of he like... He have a weapon, though. Yeah, I bet they're kind of in a vulnerable position for a minute. Like, they're climbing up out of this hole. He could run, he could do anything, but I I don't know. I think he's just had enough of this. Well, that's the thing. They've set themselves up for a scenario where this could happen because there's no one else there. Everyone else went up to stage of the scene. There's only a few of them left. So yeah, he could run, but I think he knows that he's fucked if those other two guys were killed, which they were. So they hold Gabe at gunpoint, and then they trek through the woods. They hear some gunshots, and instead of just turning and running... Amber and Pat decide to pursue it further, finding Darcy, whoever, maybe saving some lives, as unlikely as that sounds. Yeah, cause I wouldn't have even put that in, but Pat does say something about, like, were they all dead? And Gabe's like, I think, well, two of them I saw die. I don't know about the third. So they're like, yeah. well, maybe we should go, as grim as that sounds. And, it, you know, there is no saving them. I mean, no, no, they're no. Gone. Yeah. But Pat, what does he have? All his friends that he came here with are dead. He's kind of crazy at this point. I mean, he just wants to try to kill these dudes if he can, or die trying. Gabe promises to go call the cops, 
and they just let him leave in the other direction. I guess they just believe him. And it does turn out that he does say we need the police when he comes across those people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's just completely shell-shocked. Pat and Amber come across the constructed crime scene as they're laying it out with the dead bodies of the bandmates, the dog situation, setting up the siphoning gas thing with their van. They take Clark and the other skinhead at gunpoint towards Darcy. Amber kills Clark when he makes a sudden move. The other guy runs at Pat and Amber wastes him too. Yeah, she she's kills just a badass. everybody. Yeah. It's so funny because at this point you're like, well, is Pat going to kill anyone? Because <laughs> well, Amber is just killing everyone. And you are like, I, you don't know the whole backstory, but she has been kind of like part of this lifestyle. Like these are all people that she, in theory, knows. Well, yeah, I think that's why she's killing them. Because she, she knows how horrible they are. Yeah, well, she was the one that was betrayed. Pat just got caught up in something. That's right. They killed her friend, which is what started it. And Again, you don't really know the whole story, so maybe she's just like, this has all been building up, or who knows? We don't really know how long she was involved with these people. That's true. It's not like any of them are like trying to appeal to her. You know what I mean? You don't get this sense of like... They know her name, though. That's they, true. They all do know her name. Yeah. She does say, I'm not a Nazi at one point. It's really hard to get a read on her. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I want to think the best of her, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that you're like a great person if you're hanging out at this place. Well, I would agree with that. She is a badass, though, and there is no debating that. Yeah, I think she's just leaving the scene now. This is <laughs> I don't think she'll be coming back for any meetings. No, this is this. like one of those things where people have like a style change overnight. Some girl came into high school dressed as a prep one day, and the next day she was just a punk rocker. Yeah. This is one of those situations where we're in the middle of a transformation. Fleeing, Darcy pulls a revolver, but is shot dead by both of them. (laughs) Yeah. He still manages to squeeze off that last shot, though. Yeah. Even though he was shot in the head. Yeah, I don't don't remember the timing of it, but it might have just been he had his finger on the trigger kind of thing. Yeah, I think Patrick Stewart gives a pretty good cold-blooded performance. He is sort of scary and intimidating. I'd say so, yeah. It's sort of a, a small part when you actually think of it, but... Yeah, you totally buy him as like this older guardian of this group. And I'm only really basing that off of other pop culture that has to do with these people. The skinheads, the yeah. white supremacist people it does like feel, from American History X. Yeah, it does feel very similar to that. Who was the guy in American History X? It was, um, you know who I mean? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Stacy Keach. Oh, that's right. Patrick Stewart's like the Stacy Keach of this movie. Anyway, American History <laughs> X. <laughs> I'm sure we'll do it someday. Oh, sure. Another <laughs> uplifting movie. Gabe is shown asking for the police. Cowcatcher is shown briefly. One of the dudes seems dead with a needle in his arm, but Worm is conscious watching TV. So it's sort of another unclear moment here. If Sonia is making like a weird statement, like the guy that started this isn't the only one that's not dead and affected by it. Sure. Or if he's going to take the heroin, he just hasn't yet. He doesn't realize that the other people are dead. Or if he does survive, it seems likely he would get arrested. I'd say so. The people that have survived would know that he was the one that killed Emily. But, yeah, it is sort of unsatisfying in a way. I would agree with that. Because they trudge through the woods. They kill the last three people. And then you're like, 
this fucking dude who we thought was just going to die of an overdose is sitting there watching cartoons. That's right. This guy that set off this crazy chain of events. The attack dog comes upon Pat and Amber, who are just exhausted and waiting for the police to arrive and sitting there. But it just walks by and goes over to the dead body of Clark and leaves them alone. And it's sort of a, a tease of like one last That's right. thing. That doesn't happen. And finally, Pat is going to answer who his Desert Island band is. Because <laughs> he's like, I finally, I know who it is. And, he's, and Amber's just like, what? And he's like, my Desert Island band. And just, she says, tell someone who gives a shit. And goes right to credit. <laughs> Which is one of the best endings ever. <laughs> Sonia was asked in a Reddit AMA what Pat's desert bands are. And he says that Credence is one of them. And Sinister Purpose by Credence Clearwater Revival is the credit song gotcha comes on that's fun but he said there were two answers and credence is one of them i don't know what the other one is okay i don't know if there's supposed to be a clue in the movie or not i don't really care what pat's (laughs) desert island bands are it doesn't really matter to me you're more of the image and poots character (laughs) well i just think this movie is not that type of movie i agree it's supposed to be like invested in some weird (laughs) trivia moment this is not that top at the end of inception like (laughs) yeah it's (laughs) come on did it take a dive we're not i don't really care who his favorite bands are we just watch this violent bloody mess yeah yeah and yeah i think this movie just kicks so much ass (laughs) it's just so fucking cool i know and the image and poots character is just so fun to watch throughout it i just wish everyone would see this movie and check it out i wish there were more movies like this I think when I do my letterbox for this, it'll be a five star. Yeah. Just because... I guess this could have been an underrated movie based on its box office. Although it did, but it did get yeah, good reviews. Yeah, but we knew what we were doing this next. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it fits. I think the Rotten Tomatoes score, though, is pretty high. I think it amongst is, yeah. film people, this it's is well regarded. It's pretty well liked. Yeah. Everyone seems to cite it all the time. It has a higher profile than Blue Ruin, which was also universally liked by film people. Blue Ruin is just sort of a lower budget version of this. I mean, the story's It still the same. looks good, though, too. I feel like Blue Ruin yeah. has a good look to it as well. I think Sony actually did his own cinematography up until Green Room, which is the first movie he brought someone else on. He's got a good eye. Yeah, and like I said, I like Hold the Dark. I think it's a weird psychological mystery horror thing that doesn't have straight answers, which annoys a lot of people. And it is like odd by the end of it where definitely you're just like what is this but, by the beginning of it i would say it's odd yeah but you're hoping there's going to be an answer <laughs> right to this yeah stuff, and it's not the answers are worse than the questions <laughs> you're like what but yeah i thought it was cool I, it was based off of a novel so it's not like he came up with that idea i think he just wanted to, to explore that world it didn't really go over super well it was a netflix thing that sort of got buried some of this streaming stuff you have to know about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. They sort of bury it right away where they're just like, well, this isn't going to be a big deal. So forget about oh, it. Oh, right. Yeah. That <laughs> like is too the old to thing. die young. Yeah. That is the thing that there's like cool directors with careers that I'm interested in following. But yeah, with some of the stuff that doesn't go to theaters or whatever, and it's just like dropped on a streaming service, it does come with such even like movies with limited releases there's like i I don't know something exciting about that but when it just comes to a streaming service it just seems like there's like no buzz or attention yeah he's got a couple other things in production in pre-production and stuff so it seems like he'll yeah 
He'll be around. It's a career I'll be interested in following. Imogen Poots. Another career I'm interested in following. Yeah. It seems like she's been around forever. I would but agree. But she's still like only in her like early 30s. Yeah. Well, she has a youthful look to her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how old was she in this movie? She looks like she's like 19, but she had to be like in her late 20s, right? Mid-20s, yeah. Mid-20s. I think she was born in like 89 or something. Oh, yeah, okay. Younger than me. Oh, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, there definitely is. <laughs> Folks, that'll do it for a green room. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I guess let's do recommendations, if we have any. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can do one. I, I won't talk about it at length, but first time I've ever watched it. Beer League. Yes, Artie Lang's Beer League. No, <laughs> a classic movie uh, streaming on HBO Max, uh, Best Picture winner, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Watched it the oh, other night. inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, well, regardless of what anybody thinks of the director, a great movie. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I'm a fan. I've been watching a lot of Nicholson movies lately. So I actually was planning on watching Chinatown soon, and I saw you reviewed it on Letterboxd, and I was like, oof, yeah. forget it. A dislike. <laughs> no, I'll be watching it soon, probably, too. I think there's a chance we could do that on the show someday. We'll see. There's so many things left to get to. There is. It's crazy that we've been doing this for five years now, and there's still so much more. Oh, I know. It's just <laughs> endless options. My recommendation this week is streaming on Hulu, and it is a movie that I am guaranteeing we will do this year. Okay. So everyone check it out on Hulu. It's a little picture called Killer Joe. Shit. <laughs> and yes, they do have the NC-17 version on Hulu. At least that was the rating that came up. Hell yes. I do own it on Blu-ray, but Same. <laughs> I was just scrolling through Hulu, and I was like, well, I'll just put this on. Folks... <laughs> What a picture. I gave it four and a half stars on Letterboxd. It's definitely close to five for me. I think it's awesome. It's, <laughs> it's a just... four, seven, five. I do find myself on Letterboxd constantly wanting like the quarter level <laughs> you ratings. You want even more options. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is a William Friedkin movie starring Emile Hirsch, Thomas Hayden Church. Our girl, Juno, Juno Temple, Temple. In just an, a stunning role. Our other girl, Gina, Gina Gershon. Gershon. And, of course, Matthew McConaughey as the titular character, Killer Joe, about a hitman who's also a police detective who they hire to do some bullshit. I don't want to go through the whole plot now. But this was the start of the McConaissance where everything pre-2011, except for Dazed and Confused, is mostly a disaster. Mostly trash. You could say, like, okay, yeah, he's in Tropic Thunder or whatever, but... Everything McConaughey did after Days and Confused up until 2011 is questionable. It was a lot of movie star parts. He was in a lot of rom-coms. A lot of them did well. But in terms of being a real actor... He wasn't really considered a cool actor, I wouldn't no. say. And then all of a sudden, it, it changed where he was in Mud, The Lincoln Lawyer, Killer Joe, The Paperboy, Bernie, and he's... Ca- and all of a sudden True Detective ca- Season 1. Yeah, that was like a little bit later, and all of a sudden he's cast in a Christopher Nolan movie and 
a Martin Scorsese movie. Turns out he's only in one scene of Wolf of Wall Street, but he's great. In he that was one listed scene. in it though. Yeah, and then he won the Oscar around the same time, so everything changed, and we had a new guy. But Killer Joe was like right at the start of that. We were just like, "What the fuck?" You like basically see his ball bag at one point. Yeah, which makes for an awesome viewing. <laughs> it's rated NC seventeen. It is disturbing. There are a couple of scenes that are trimmed in the R-rated version. That's a shame. One of them is just for violence. The other one is for <laughs> explicit something completely content. Ex- yeah. insane. Well, where there actually isn't even nudity in it. No, I know. <laughs> Which is, I mean, there is in the movie, but not in that scene. Right, right. <laughs> oh, God. That is a wild scene. It's a Tracy Let's Play. So, fucking Lady Bird's dad again. I recommended Bug on this podcast before he also wrote bug so friedkin went back to back with tracy let's scripts but yeah i definitely want to do killer joe on the show this year so if you haven't seen it watch it on hulu i'm sure most people haven't it's not like (laughs) it was a big hit i think they had a chance to cut it to be rated r and friedkin was like no i guess he had like final cut i don't know because it pretty much guaranteed it wasn't gonna make any money well it was the right call yeah it's great (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is it's such a great movie yeah i love it all right so that'll do it for green room we will talk to you next week with a new episode follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple podcasts keep uh sending in those sticker requests i'm i'm sending them out i'm staying on top of it sticker requests let us know on twitter slide into our dms that's right it's free it's fun People who have already done it are super happy with their sticker, so just do it. Also, if you have a listener request, let us know on Twitter as well, at GreatestPod. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on Letterboxd. You can see me watch four movies a day. (laughs) Doesn't (laughs) seem like I'm getting a ton of engagement on the reviews yet, but... Come on, guys. I see you, Kevin. You gave me a comment on one of them. Thanks, Kev. (laughs) On Killer Joe, actually. (laughs) Which I gave four and a half stars. So, yeah. I want to see what you're watching. So, don't just create an account just to follow us. I want to, you know, log what you're watching, give it a rating and review and all that stuff so we we can make fun of you behind your back and be like, oh, my God, this review. It's meant to be a community, you know, like that compound in a green room. (laughs) Except even more depressing. Yeah, yeah. And horrible. All right, so that'll do it, and we'll talk to you next time.
Uh, a luxury you can't live without. A luxury I can't live without. Coffee. I really like good coffee. It's not coffee. a luxury you can get it anywhere. Ah, I guess, yeah, I like good coffee. What's? Uh, I love coffee, too. I like nice socks. Socks. Your, your socks, would you put in your shoes? Yeah, I really love them. I like kind of like, you know, cozy feet. You're attracted to your socks. I'm attracted to really nice running socks. Like, I'm always looking for good running you know, socks. Not, that's not a luxury, though. Coffee and socks are not a luxury. All right, give me a luxury. What, what luxury should I have? Private plane. Larry, I'm on DuckTales.